Well, uh, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I hope that you had just a, an amazing day with friends and family. And I trust that you had a good amount to eat. I know I did. Uh, I saw some of you come in this morning and you were like, oh, you could just tell, like you had the meat sweats. <laughs> like, oh, so much food. I, I love Thanksgiving. And let me just tell you, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, and kind of continuing what Pastor Brad said, our family is so thankful for so many things in, in 2017. We're thankful that the Lord brought us to Indiana. We're thankful for new friends. We're thankful for our house. We're thankful for uh, the, the position I'm in and the ministries I get to lead. We're thankful for our new baby daughter, Penelope Ann Bryant, who was born two months ago. And we're thankful for all of you. And I mean that. We're thankful for you, Bethel Church. And I know that sounds cheesy, because it is. <laughs> but we are. I have met a number of you, maybe half of which I remember your names, the rest of which I've gotten really good at acting like I know your name. So um, don't quiz me though. If I don't know your name, just, just show some grace. But it has just been a privilege getting to know you all. And listen, Bethel is a special church. It really, really is. And so we feel privileged to be a part of this church family. And so really, truly, from the bottom of our hearts, we say, Thank you. Uh, see? All right, getting mushy. Um, all right, enough of the mushy stuff. Well, like I said, I love Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is, I think, my favorite holiday. And it's my favorite holiday for four reasons, the four Fs. Faith, family, food, <clears throat> and football. I, love, I mean, how does it get better than that, right? But contrast it with the following day which is one of my least favorite days of the year, Black Friday. <laughs> now, listen, I know 150 million Americans shopped on Black Friday, which means, statistically speaking, that many of you shopped on Black Friday. Listen, I'm not knocking Black Friday or those who shop on Black Friday. More power to you. I know a lot of people do that. And I love a good deal. I am a penny pincher to the max. I could squeeze a dime out of a nickel. But I don't do Black Friday. I've never have just because I hate shopping. I, I am not fond of large crowds, and I really hate getting up super early in the morning. So three strikes. Plus, on Black Friday, some people just go nuts. I mean, they lose their minds. Muy loco. Check out these pictures. So this is a picture of outside of Macy's, hundreds and hundreds of people waiting to get in. Huge crowd. Now, inside, I don't know if this is inside Macy's or another store, but look at this. I mean, rustling, pushing each other out of the way, biting, clawing, just to save $100 on the TV. Next picture. This one's actually my favorite, and I'll tell you why it's my favorite. <laughs> Notice the fierce look of ferocity, intensity right here. I mean, that woman is determined. You do not want to get in her way. In fact, this little lady is shoving this guy, who's twice as tall, out of her way like, Mama, don't lose this, son. I got to buy some shoes. <laughs> That's funny. The people just, it's crazy. Insanity and chaos ensues. This year alone, at a mall in Houston, there were shootings and stabbings. At a mall in Alabama, there was a massive brawl that broke out. 
And I kid you not, at a Walmart in Texas, someone literally set fire inside the store. Why? Why such craziness? Well, I don't think it's the gift or the buying the gift. It's not the giving that is the problem. It's the motive. Now, again, listen, everyone here who shopped on Black Friday, I assume that you had the purest motives and the noblest intentions and every gift you bought was from the kindness of your heart. But a lot of people don't. Their motive is off. It's the motive behind the giving. Many people buy gifts and give gifts out of what I call transactional compulsion. So someone gives them a gift and they feel like, well, now I got to give them a gift back. And so they're compelled out of guilt, really, to give a gift to the other person. It's not out of the goodness of their heart. Now contrast this with, with, this with Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, we see this guy named Zacchaeus. And if you're not familiar with this story or with the children's song, let me describe Zacchaeus to you. Zacchaeus, how do I put this? Well, he was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior came, no, I'm not going to see it. No. Um, <laughs> Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And tax collectors were notorious back in the day. They were extremely wealthy, but everyone despised them. Imagine if IRS agents nowadays, when they would collect taxes, skimmed some off the top and pocketed it. That's what they would do. They would take some of the money that they received from the taxes and keep it themselves. Basically, they were stealing. And so people hated and despised tax collectors. So you can imagine Zacchaeus all his life lived in just guilt and shame over his sin. But he hears about this guy named Jesus. And Jesus is coming into the city, Jericho, where he is. And, you know, he's a man of small stature, a wee little man. <laughs> and so there's a huge crowd, and he can't see through the crowd, and he just wants to catch a glimpse of Jesus. And so he, out of desperation, does the only thing he knows to do. He climbs up a tree just to see this Jesus guy. And Jesus, being the Son of God, knows his heart, and he goes up to this tree and says, Hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. You're going to have me over to your house for dinner tonight. Which I think is funny because Jesus totally invited himself over. He's the son of God. He can do that. And Zacchaeus, it says, comes down willingly and receives Jesus joyfully into his house. He invites several other guests. They have this huge banquet. And presumably, Jesus teaches or they have conversation about salvation by grace because Zacchaeus gets saved transformed radically. And we know this because he tells Jesus, hey, Jesus, I'm going to sell half of my stuff and I'm going to give it to the poor. And you know all those people I've defrauded and stolen from? I'll give back to them fourfold. And Jesus says, behold, today salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man comes to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus was giving out of thanksgiving, because Jesus is for giving. Turn to Luke chapter 7. This is our text today. Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, go to Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible or Bible app, you can follow along on the screen. Verse 36. And one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. 
So a Pharisee invited Jesus over to his house to dine with him and with several other guests. Now, who were the Pharisees? Well, there were two groups that comprised the ruling class among the Jews in Israel. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees were kind of the middle class minority among this group of Jewish leaders. And so they were highly relatable to the people. The people loved them. They were highly esteemed because of that. And the Pharisees considered themselves guardians of the Jewish laws and traditions. If anyone could be saved by righteous deeds, it'd be these guys. I mean, they appeared good through, through their ritualistic religious lifestyle. They were meticulous in striving for outward holiness. They were notorious for distancing themselves from sinners. Honestly, though, they were hypocrites. They would teach one thing and live another way. Jesus said they would strain the gnat but swallow the camel, meaning meaning they made much of little and little of much. And they had a high view of themselves. And so Jesus challenged them. He called them out consistently. And because of that, they despised Jesus. Now, we don't know much about this Pharisee, except his name was Simon. But it seems as though he's genuinely intrigued by Jesus. He's curious. Makes sense. After all, Jesus was a polarizing figure. Many people loved him and thousands of people flocked to see him and some people wanted to kill him. So Simon wants to find out what's, what's this Jesus guy all about. And so he invites Jesus to his house and Jesus takes his place at the table. Now here's where things get interesting. Verse 37 And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Look! That's the word it uses. Some of you actually turned your heads. Good. Look! Behold! That's the word Luke uses here. Behold! And when when that word is used in scripture, what it means is something shocking is about to happen. And so Luke says, behold! A woman who was in the city, a sinner. She was known by all in that area as a sinner. Her reputation preceded her, and not in a good way, but in the worst way. And nearly every scholar believes that this woman likely was a prostitute. My guess is that she had encountered Jesus previously. Maybe she heard his teachings on salvation by grace, and her heart was touched And she wanted to know Jesus more. She needed to hear more. She learns that Jesus is at the Pharisee's house and she brings an alabaster jar of ointment. Alabaster was this precious stone that was similar to white marble. And they would use it to build jars that would hold ointments, oils, perfumes, because it was a heavy stone. It would allow the smell to stay in the bottle and not to escape. And then they would seal the bottle with wax. And to open the jar, because of that, the top would have to be broken. You would have to smash the jar, which allowed it to only be used once. Meaning that if you were to break open an alabaster jar of perfume or oil, you had better save it for a really, really good occasion. This was undoubtedly expensive. And for this woman, it may have been her most valuable possession. Verse 38, and standing behind Jesus at his feet 
she wept, weeping and weeping. And she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. My theory is that she discovers where Jesus is and she just barges into the house. Now, whether the door was open or the door was closed, we don't know. But either way, she goes to the house and just barges right in. And we know that because the Pharisees, remember, they distanced themselves from sinners. This Pharisee never, ever, ever would have allowed her into his house. And so she goes into his house, not even cognizant of the other guests that are there, maybe not even aware that this is the house of a Jewish leader, and she makes a beeline for Jesus. She goes straight to Jesus because she just had to see Jesus. Throughout Jesus' ministry, people came to see him all the time. They came for physical healing or to be delivered, set free from demonic spiritual oppression and bondage. Thousands had heard of Jesus' wisdom and they wanted to just hear his teaching. Or maybe like Zacchaeus, they just, some just wanted to catch, catch a glimpse of Jesus. But to my knowledge, this woman is the only one in the Gospels who goes to Jesus with the express purpose of forgiveness. She wanted forgiveness, which means that she had incredible faith in Jesus' identity as the Son of God. She believed Jesus had the power to forgive sins. There's no record of this woman saying a single word. She just plants herself at Jesus' feet And weeps. Weeps. Tears are streaming down her face like streams. She is sobbing profusely. Have you ever had a gushing cry? I don't mean a cry like you're watching a romantic comedy, The Notebook, and a tear just goes rolling down your cheek. I mean where you are bawling uncontrollably. You you can't stop. You're so overwhelmed by emotion and grief. I've done this a few times in my life. I've seen this. And listen, ministry is hard. Some of the hardest times in ministry I've had is being with people when they find out a loved one dies. And you talk about a gushing cry, a piercing scream. This woman, if you look at the connotation of the Greek when it says crying, it's this notion of crying over and over and over. She can't stop. And even more odd, she wets Jesus' feet with her tears and then dries them with her hair, which is a big deal. Because women back then were not allowed to let down their hair in the presence of others besides their husband. It would have been seen as incredibly shameful. But then she proceeds to kiss his feet again, over and over. We know that because Jesus later says that she hasn't stopped, she hasn't ceased to kiss his feet. And then she anoints his feet with costly, precious oil. If this all sounds like this would have been an awkward scene, that's because it would have been awkward. It would have been. I mean, imagine if someone walked into this auditorium right now, just sobbing loudly and profusely, just just bawling, tears streaming, and they plant themselves next to you. And they take the shoes off of the person who is next to you, and they're just crying tears are falling down on their feet. They're wiping those feet with their hair. Then they take expensive uh, ointment. They rub it on the feet while they're kissing the feet. That would be weird, right? Especially if it was a person of ill repute in town. 
I guarantee you in here, every jaw would drop. Mine included. I don't know what I would do if I would keep preaching or just be like, what is going on? Right? It would be awkward. But this woman could care less. All social norms, any sense of propriety and dignity, the perception of keeping up appearances, the notion of looking good in front of others, it's all out the window. She has one singular focus, Jesus. And if you've ever been mired in guilt and shame, if you've ever ever been overtaken by grief over your own wickedness, if you've ever been deep in sin with no idea how to get out, you might just get this woman. You might just understand what is driving her to such eccentric behavior. Guilt and shame over sin never just sloughs off. It compounds and builds and builds and builds heavier and heavier and heavier until we are holding the weight of the world on our shoulders like Atlas, buckling under its enormous pressure. And in that moment, wouldn't you just do anything to be set free? Wouldn't you just do anything to have that burden lifted? This woman is utterly broken over her sins with nowhere else to turn. And that's why, number one, to grasp the gospel, you must be broken over your sin and desperate for his grace. Verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who or what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. Do you see the skepticism? If this Jesus were truly a holy man, he would never let a wretched sinner touch him. There's no evidence of faith whatsoever in Simon. He doesn't really believe in Jesus' identity as the Son of God, as this woman certainly does. But also, look at how self-righteous he is. He says, her reputation is all over the city. Surely Jesus would know what kind of woman this is, and he would not allow her to even touch him. Oh, what a holier-than-thou attitude. Clearly, he thinks he's morally superior to her. He thinks he's better. It's reminiscent of the story we see in Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14, the, the story of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And these two guys are praying in the temple. And it says the Pharisee is standing in front of everyone and praying loudly to be seen and heard by others. He's praying, God, thank you that I'm not like other sinners, including this tax collector over here. Which, if I was the tax collector, I'd be like, hey! <laughs> Thank you that I'm not like these sinners. I tithe regularly and I fast twice a week. Oh, he thanks God, but is he truly thankful? No. He's a totally selfish jerk. Well, surely I am righteous. Thank you that I'm not like these lackeys over here. Meanwhile, the tax collector is huddled over in the corner praying, so riddled with, brokenness over his sin that it says that he doesn't even lift up his head. His head is bowed down. He can't even lift up his head. And he beats his chest in anguish and he says, oh God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Not 
a sinner. Literally, the sinner. He is so broken over his sin. And Jesus says that it was the latter one, the tax collector, who left there justified. The fact is, we are all on equal footing when it comes to the putrid pit of sin. We cannot compare ourselves to others. Let's say that two people are in a, in a deep, dark pit, and they've tried climbing their way out, they've tried digging their way out, they've tried jumping their way out, nothing doing. Now, what if one of the guys goes, hey, check this out. 36-inch vertical. The other would be like, so? We're still in this pit? What good does that do? We're, we're still in the pit unless you can jump your way out. They're still in the pit with no way out. And listen, when we compare ourselves to others, we're doing the same. We, do, we only have one, one to whom we should compare ourselves. And we don't even begin to compare to him. So number two, when you don't grasp your own sinfulness, self-righteousness is the result. Jesus is not a friend to the self-righteous. He's a friend to the repentant sinner. Let's be honest, we are far more like the Pharisee than we would like to admit. How many of us today are deeply broken over our sins? See, we tend to think, at least subconsciously, that we're, we're pretty good. You know, it's, it's the big sinners that need grace. And of course the Lord would save me. I mean, come on, look at me, right? When we play the comparison game, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. And initially, you might hear this story. In fact, the Jewish, initial, the, the Jewish listeners who were hearing this story initially would assume that the religious man was the righteous one here. But here's where Jesus gives the twist. Verse 40, and Jesus answered, saying to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Jesus tells this parable where two people owe money to the same guy, large sums of money. The first owed 500 denarii and the second owed 50. Now, a denarius was equivalent to basically a day's wage for a common laborer. So in the U.S., let's say that the average salary is $50,000. It's like the first person owed $70,000. That's a lot of money. And the second person owed $7,000, still a lot of money. And when the creditor realizes that they are unable to pay, literally it says they're unable to pay, he completely cancels both debts. Not a trace of those debts exist anymore. And, and it's not because of their own doing. They absolutely could not pay, and the money lender knows this. And so out of an act of mercy and grace, he wipes their slates clean. And there's so much that can be talked about in regard to salvation by grace here, but that's not Jesus' main point. His main point is, how do you respond to that grace? So Jesus asks the Pharisee a simple question. Which person who's in debt would love the moneylender more? And Simon correctly answers, well, I suppose the one with greater debt. 
larger debt. And Jesus says, exactly, exactly. And turning toward the woman, he looks at her. I, I have to believe Jesus looks at this woman with nothing but love. And he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. In a wealthy household, it was custom to have a servant wash the feet of guests as they entered in, or at least to have a water basin, a bowl of water where they can wash their own feet. Simon doesn't do this. He doesn't show Jesus the honor, shows not even the dignified gesture of putting out a bowl of water. Yet this sinful woman has been bathing Jesus' feet with her tears nonstop and drying his feet with her own hair. It's one thing for this woman to wash Jesus' feet, but she doesn't even use a rag to dry them. She uses her hair, and hair back then was as important to a woman as it is today. I mean, think about the disgusting conditions of ancient roads. Dr. Scholl did not exist back then. The roads would have been dusty, animal feces would have been everywhere, and you know, it's the Middle East, it would have been hot. Their feet would have been incredibly sweaty. Have you ever smelled sweaty feet when they've been in leather sandals all day? (laughs) And yet this woman gladly uses her hair to wipe his feet. Jesus says, Simon, you gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. A custom greeting back then was kind of a European-style kiss. They would kiss each other on the cheek, and Simon does not even do that. But this woman would not stop kissing Jesus' feet. He says, you did not anoint my head with oil. For a truly special guest, for an honored guest, you would take olive oil and drop a couple drops on their forehead, indicating that this is a person of honor. This is a truly special guest. Simon does not do that. But this woman anointed his feet with a costly ointment. And remember, this is one of the most expensive, valuable possessions she owns. And she breaks it open to pour over Jesus' feet. And once it's broken, you cannot unbreak it. Think about this for a second. What a beautiful, symbolic picture. All her dignity, all her pride, all her, her strife and her stress, her Worry, anxiety, all of her hurt and pain and despair from being ridiculed by others, all of her guilt and shame over her sin, her brokenness, she breaks at the feet of Jesus and pours it on his feet as if to say, here it is, everything. You have my everything. But what do we do? We cling to all that with a tight fist. We give God our scraps. We give God our leftovers. Maybe we need instead to smash it all at the feet of Jesus and say, here it is. Here it is, Lord. You may have my all. What would drive this woman to such uncouth behavior? Simply this. She loved Jesus. And because she was forgiven much, she gave much. The greatest redeemed sinners make the greatest saints. Look at history. The Apostle Paul, 
Before he was the Apostle Paul, he was known as Saul, a persecutor and murderer of Christians. And then he, on the road to Damascus, he encounters Jesus, and he is radically transformed by grace. And he becomes the greatest missionary this world has ever seen. In fact, out of the 27 books of the New Testament, he has written 13 of them. Or what about Augustine? Augustine in the 4th century was known as a sexual deviant. He was into all kinds of partying and lewd behavior, drunkenness, revelry. And then he gets radically saved, radically transformed by Christ. And he becomes one of the most well-known, influential theologians in church history, in the early church especially. What about John Newton? John Newton was literally a slave trader. He owned a, a slave trading business. But he gets radically saved, radically transformed, and he sells it all, quits the business, and becomes one of the most uh, noble proponents for abolition in England, fighting against the trade of slavery. And then he writes easily one of the most well-known hymns of all time, which actually was being played during the offering. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found once blind, but now I see. Number three, when you sin much and are forgiven much, you love much. The reality is, among most Christians, I don't see this zeal for Christ like this woman had. Often not even in my own life. Where's this zeal for Christ? Where's the passionate gratefulness for his mercy and forgiveness? Do we live and give wholeheartedly out of a sacrifice of thanksgiving? Oh, I pray that we would. Verse 48, and Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go. Go in peace. Jesus does not condemn this woman, which her sins absolutely deserved. But instead, he forgives her freely. And lest we think that he forgave her because of her acts of kindness here, remember that she was in spiritual debt that she could never pay. She was sinking in the quicksand of sin with no hope, no way to save herself, no way to get out. And so she appealed to the only one who could rescue her. And rescue her, he did. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Which shocks the people because only God has the power to forgive sins. And she loves him because her sins were forgiven by him. Guilt and shame in her were gone. Gone. No longer was she in bondage. Her slate had been cleaned. Her debt had been paid. She was free and forgiven by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so number four, our love for Jesus is the telltale sign of genuine faith. I don't know if you've ever had a near-death experience but let's say you are in downtown Chicago and you're walking with a friend on the streets of Chicago and you're having a good conversation. You're, you're deep in good discussion. You're just really involved in this conversation. 
You're not really even noticing where you are, your whereabouts. And so as you're walking, you're about to step into a busy intersection, about to step into uh, traffic that is just going full bore. And as you're about to step there, there's a bus just, I mean, coming down on you. And your friend grabs you by the shirt and pulls you back and saves you from inevitable death on impact. How would you respond? Would it be with a, oh, all right, thanks. Hey, I'll check you later. See ya. No. I don't know how you would respond. Here's how I would respond. Ah, I'm alive. I'm alive. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Can I at least buy you lunch? Right? Wouldn't you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you at least buy that person coffee? Being saved from certain death has a powerful effect on someone. You see things differently with a thankful perspective. And so lastly, number five, thankfulness to Jesus is this. It is awe-filled realization of his grace. And I assure you, God has done so much more then saved us from being hit by a bus. In our sins, we were aimed for being hit by God's almighty just wrath that is due against our sin. And at just the right moment, Jesus reached out and grabbed us and pulled us from behind, and he took the blow. He took the hit that we deserved on the cross. Jesus absorbed all of God's wrath so that we did not have to. And so how do you respond to that grace? How do we respond? We give because he has given us everything. We serve because he has served us. And we bear witness of the good news of Jesus because Jesus is our good news. In essence, it's this. We live for him and give to him out of gratitude for his grace. There are two faith-filled realizations you must have in the gospel. You must understand the magnitude of your sin. But also, you must understand the magnitude of our Savior. you got to grasp the depths of your depravity, but simultaneously the greatness of his grace. And, and you can't go far enough with either extreme. In fact, John Piper says it this way, you are more sinful than you ever thought you were. But you are more loved than you ever dreamed you could be. And when you understand those two things, those two extremes, you can't remain in guilt and shame over your sin because you're saved by grace. And you also can't get a big head because it wasn't your doing. It's only when we grasp both the sinful muck that we were in and simultaneously the glory of being in Christ through his grace, only then will we genuinely have a thankful heart to the Lord. And so our giving is a reflection of how well we understand his forgiving grace. As you know, unless this is your first time here, we are in the middle of this financial fundraising effort, this financial initiative called More and Better. And if this is your first time here or you haven't heard about this, I would encourage you to go to the kiosk after the service and get one of these, find out more about it. God is doing some really cool things at Bethel, amen? I mean, 
really cool things. He's using uh, this local body of Christ in powerful ways, and we're seeing people come to Christ, and it's just awesome. And honestly, this whole thing is really just trying to keep up with what God is doing. And so it involves several projects and, and various uh, fundraising initiatives. But listen, we are not raising funds for the sake of raising funds. We're not doing this because it is easy or fun. And if you think it's easy or fun, I would highly encourage you, please talk to Pastor Brad after this service because he may just make you our chief fundraiser. It's not easy. And if you think that the goal is to raise $3 million, you're wrong. That's not the point. If you think the goal is to plant churches and start new campuses and expand the scope of some of our ministries and to give to the City Life Center and, and to do building renovation projects, if you think that's the end goal, it's not. In fact, listen, hear me out, hear me out. If you think the end ultimate goal is even to make more and better disciples, it's not. The end goal is giving God glory. That's the end goal. And all this stuff is simply a means to that end. All these projects are a means to an end. Giving is a means to an end. Even making more and better disciples, which is what the church is commanded to do, what is necessary, even that is a means to the end of bringing God glory. And if the goal is God's glory, then the act of giving is not nearly as important as the heart behind that giving. And so if we have a church full of thankful hearts in light of the gospel, the giving will just naturally happen. We shouldn't even be worried about it. It will happen because our aim should be to remember the gospel and to give out of our gratitude for the gospel. So if your motive to give is to please others, God doesn't want your money. If your motive to give is to feel good about yourself, God doesn't want your money. If your motive is guilt and shame or undue pressure, if it's to look good before others, if it's to give uh, legalistically or reluctantly, God does not want your money. If you give because you're just trying to earn the Lord's favor, God does not want your money. Listen, no one compelled this woman to do what she did. No one said, hey, I think Jesus is at the house of the Pharisee down the road. Why don't you take this alabaster flask, go over there, break it over his feet, just cry uncontrollably, sob, then take your hair. and No one told her to do that. So why did she do it? She wasn't compelled. It was her love for Jesus. If you are giving to the church based on obligation and burden, your motivation is off kilter. You cannot treat giving to the Lord like it's just another online bill pay. So how do you counteract that notion? How do we counteract that notion? You constantly go back to the gospel. Constantly. God desires a heart that treasures his grace. So we have to remember the pit of sin that we were in, but simultaneously remembering his gracious rescuing because of his love for us. Now listen, do we want you to give to the more and better financial efforts? Of course. But make sure your heart is in the right place. Our giving should come out of thanksgiving for his grace.